Welcome back to STG Talks. We're your hosts, Kevin and James, based in Chicago and Scotland, and we're here to inspire you to take action towards achieving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Each week's episode, we will be talking with changemakers about their grassroots and global initiatives related to the 2030 Agenda. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode, and please be sure to check out the show notes for links and further reading. Like currently, 80% of trucks out for delivery are stopped. So this isn't a traffic issue, it's like a civic, it's a human behavior issue. And until cities start acting on the human behavior piece first and designing for who's there, like how they interact with the city and the places and like what they need to be safe, like we're, we're starting from the wrong, the wrong place. SDG Talks community, welcome back. Today, you're gonna hear one of my favorite podcasts that I've recorded within recent memory with Samantha Matthews, who's the founder, CEO, and CTO of Loci. Loci is an innovative safety training platform that measurably reduces risk in any environment. You may ask, well, what does that even mean? And how do you do that? Well, Sam uses WebXR, Web3 protocols by leveraging immersive technology, digital presence, and web-based accessibility to build behavior-changing training tools and bring safety into the future. That may sound confusing, but trust me, Sam is full of passion and has this amazing desire to disrupt and advance society forward. By listening to this, you're bound to learn a lot of new ways to leverage technology to, to, to support and go after the SDGs. I know you're going to enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed creating and keep on SDG talking. Samantha Matthews, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Where are you located today in the world? Oh, I'm in, I'm having a rare, beautiful, sunny day in Vancouver, BC, in Canada. Oh, I love Vancouver. I went to UBC one time and it was the oh. first school that I visited where I actually had FOMO and genuinely was like, man, I, maybe I should have gone to UBC. It's in, it's in such an incredible location and like, it's like kind of surrounded by the ocean and like these ancient trees. It's, it's so pretty. I'm like really right in the forest on the water here and it's beautiful. It's like the air is nothing like it in the world. Oh, that's the best. Well, it's, it's important to be out in nature uh, and mm-hmm. kind of experience that one of the many SDG topics that we explore. Um, Definitely. Especially then this time. Cause like, I mean, I was the first half of the pandemic, I was in an apartment. The second half I was in a house in the woods and the second half was better. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, it's, it, it's important to be in a good headspace. I mean, if you're not, it's sort of hard to focus or, or do anything productive. Exactly. Yeah. So you have a fascinating background and I feel like I could ask you a million things and I'm so excited for our user base to, to get to know you more. Um, but I want to start off with getting your point of view on the current state of education. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a broad question from what it means in North America to Africa. But mm-hmm. what, what do you think is it's 20, October 2021? We just went through this pandemic, still going through it in many ways. And uh, the education system, I think, has, had, has shown to have a lot of cracks. But maybe mm-hmm. also there's been some unique leap forward opportunities. Education to you, like where are we now and what, what's your point of view on it? Well, I, I think we're at such an interesting time, um, especially like I think the pandemic showed that education as it shows up in society, like from, say, grade school to high school is state sponsored childcare, And uh, this is sort of like a key piece to me, which is creating a safe space for kids to go and learn how to be with each other 
is one thing. It's not like that they're actually learning skills for life or anything in those classes. I think the same as they are learning skills for life from being together. Um, then there's the sort of inequality that happens at, um, with the majority of the childcare and homework falling in uh, to women's hands, unfortunately, still. And like we have compared to other countries, like a lot of like uh, paternal involvement in, in families and homes and households compared to other countries, but it's still not the same. And so we see that education falls uh, a lot on the maternal sides to take care of at home. So you have a lot of women leaving their jobs in the workforce. And then you have uh, kids that are being asked to sit in front of a screen all day, uh, which just is like, I, I have a hard time doing it. So I can't imagine being a little kid doing that. Um, before the pandemic, we saw a lot of just, you know, we were, everybody was kind of getting frustrated with just how de deteriorating the subject matter is in schools compared to what the needs are. And you see lots of like in school code programs come and like private companies and private, the private sector trying to add in programs to schools and stuff that help upskill people or put them on the path to at least, uh, fill job markets, but that was very slow and specific and lots of little experiments there. I think that we're in for uh, a lot of changes. I've seen an explosion in the learning management system and sort of learning startup space. Uh, but it's with that, uh, I think when people are so desperate to try and innovate, they forget about change management and that our education system is old and bureaucratic. Uh, and so I think that we need to see, um, I think we'll see a lot more, like just like, it'll just be chaotic for a while. I don't know if we'll settle into certain styles. I think you'll see a lot more, maybe parents pulling their kids out and doing little homeschooling groups and cohorts and things like that. Um, I think we'll see more of uh specialized programs like uh, and learning tracks sort of programs that are virtual and, and remote. But I think that we'll see a return back to hopefully like figure helping kids learn how to think, not just shoving stuff into their brain and curriculums and then testing them. Right. Um, learning how to like understanding the social aspect of school and like the relationships that you're building with each other are kind of mm, the main point of it all. Um, and I think you're seeing a, like a huge uh, shift in how we give information, hopefully for the better, uh, because we're starting to realize like a lot more about how the brain works and how we learn. So rather than have this uh, old school sort of written mem memorization and uh, or down to where it got like a little bit too froofy of like, lots of hands-on learning and no rip memorization uh, to something that's more about uh, like, like uh, skills building and holistic skills building that, that will help uh, help you after you leave school. It's such a but it, I, it's a chaotic mess in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. A beautiful chaotic mess with hopefully some opportunities. And, yeah. and I only, I only have about a thousand questions to ask you from your, your initial point of view. So thank you. But one, one thing you said that, that, did catch my attention and I think a lot about is sort of what is the point of education? And you'd mentioned sometimes it's, hey, taking this existing system and shoving a bunch of information into the brains of students so they can take some tests to meet some standards so schools continue to get funding so they can stay open. 
and mm-hmm. and it's like well is that is that the goal or is it is it really to to create and uh, enable critic critical thinking skills and mm-hmm. and and obviously there's a big difference from from the arts to stem uh, to engineering to the theater like there's there's a whole range there but still there's like this core principle of like what is the point of education and like and how do we how do we continue to foster that not just teaching to a test but actually teaching so students are learning and, and becoming critical thinkers yeah and i think to get there we have to take a step back and think about like what are all the ways that people think and learn because there's a lot of different, we don't all learn the same way. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to understand neurodivergence and like things like certain brains, you know, that may seem disruptive in class are going to go start a company and and they're actually just moving too fast, right? Like there's, there's, you know, certain people who seem like they can't read or speak, but can program an entire software platform overnight. Mm. And so I'm hoping that if that that the neuroscience and the understanding of neurodivergence, the actual understanding of the chemical makeup of the brain and what's driving focus, what's driving attention. Um, ideally, we start there rather than think about all the things that are wrong and all the places that we should go, right? And think about yeah. how should people learn? Because I, you know, I've come. We, you work a little bit in virtual reality. I've worked in virtual reality a lot, and for me, what's missing a lot in education is context. Why are you learning this? Who's it for? Like, and, and it's in these 2D places. We're looking at pictures of how to do things and, and information is flowing at us from all these different places. And I don't think we're learning. I think the first step in actually changing the education system is helping people become self-aware of what type of brain they have and what drives their interest. So funny that you said that word neurodivergence because literally yesterday I heard that same term for the first time. It was, it was neurodiversity, mm-hmm. but I hosted a clubhouse room on dyslexia in the fire service. And it, we ended up having like 50 people. And um, there was this one uh, gentleman named Dr. Burton Clark. Um, he's out in the East coast and he had, dys- he has dyslexia and um, he talked about some of the struggles growing up in terms of how the current system really made him feel like he was a complete failure coming home mm-hmm. and, you know, getting these F's and crying to his mom. And, and there's a lot of these different stories about how the current system in certain ways fails people who have different neurodiversity. Uh, that's not kind of the standard norm. Um, but I loved how he said, he was like, actually, I realized once I made the switch of looking at it as a disability, but more make realizing it was actually my superpower um, mm-hmm. in, in changing how I approached learning and my tactics, like my life changed forever. Um, and I think it's really important to have that self-awareness of who you are as a learner. Um, and I think sometimes there needs to be that system in place of how we can audit people, not like we're trying to you know, put you in the category and say you go over there, but I think finding that and understanding what your neurodiversity is, is important. Um, yeah. So how, how do you, how do you do that? Is there some new, is there a new met, like auditing testing way? Well, or like I, think there's, I mean, we have to, I think there's, I, I, we're in a renaissance of, of self-awareness. Like I more than ever, like I'm encouraged by Gen Z's like TikToking me about how comorbidities show up in ADHD to a dance. Like, I think that's freaking incredible mm-hmm. uh, because what is happening is like people are really having these big breakthroughs about 
how they learn or who they are, or how they show up. And then they're like, oh my God, I want to share this with other people. I want other people to have the same experience of me of self-awareness. And so I think, I don't know exactly how to test for it. Unfortunately, in places like Canada, where uh, as great as it is to have free healthcare, you can't see a psychiatrist unless you're literally like holding a knife to someone's throat. Um, it's mental health is still treated like uh, disorders, right? Like they're literally labeled that way. And so it's, uh, the stigma attached to understanding your brain means you might be labeled with a disorder in a matter of like a few questions. And so, and then, like, yeah, I hadn't heard neurodivergence since till last year. I was diagnosed with ADHD and was raised with the impression that it was a self-control and uh, discipline problem. Right. And like only literally in becoming an entrepreneur and having people tell me all the time, like, wow, you have a crazy brain. Like, wow, your brain's so interesting. Wow. I don't know how you think like that. And like having had a decade of figuring out what works for me and what doesn't by trial and error, figured out how to get the right team around me and the right assistance to like really put that energy towards a goal and drive hard and fast, faster than anyone could go that didn't have ADHD. But I didn't know that I had this until I was succeeding with it, not failing with it. So I was succeeding with my ADHD. And then I heard this uh, podcast with, uh, where they were interviewing venture capitalists as to why uh, startup founders would want to come to their firm. And there was this one firm that was talking about their wellness program. And they're like, you know, over 33% of entrepreneurs have ADHD and untreated. These are the comorbidities that come with it. And I was like, hold, this, hold on a second. One in... Like 3% of the population has ADHD, but 33% of entrepreneurs or more have ADHD. Like, what's that? Does that mean that like, what, like, and it just, that for some reason was the first time it stuck with me that like, this was worth looking into as an adult. This is worth like understanding a little bit more and that it might not be a bad thing or a discipline thing. And then, you know, having people like Andrew Huberman, who so eloquently just break down how the brain works and and understanding that there was actually a tremendous amount of resources that weren't there five years ago, the last time I Googled it, you know, that uh, really made me feel like what I have is not only something that can be controlled and used for like extreme advantage, but that it's all these little things that I had been doing were actually the right things to be doing. So it gave me a lot more trust and faith in myself to be able to look after myself. And then it also gave me all these extra tools to know when, oh, this is just a dopamine receptor issue, not a you issue, right? And so that helped me so much. And like my life has changed since in just six months since I really took it seriously and started diving into it. And it's a very similar story to the firefighter, the, the doctor and the firefighting thing you were talking about. Um, and so I don't know how to how to start bringing that awareness. And I think it's happening naturally. I think that workplaces should like, usually things get motivated most by private industry. And so I'm hoping that workplaces understanding that like, oh yeah, getting somebody who's autistic, but like in, insane coder is a good thing. Getting somebody who has ADHD and doesn't want to do their timesheets, but will write you a paper overnight is a good thing, right? And so if you can find a way to work with them, you're going to get a lot out of this. And I think that Unfortunately, we're not using classrooms and like our sort of like 
times to sort of do that self-discovery that I think is there. I think it's a really like touchy subject with parents to try and bring that into classrooms. Um, uh, so I don't know how to begin with that, but I, as a teacher, if I were starting today, I'd want to have the tools to understand what inspires focus and attention in my students before I start teaching them. And I don't know if we're setting teachers up with that framework yet to sort of figure out curriculums that can accommodate multiple learning styles. Yeah. And that, that's obviously a, a significant challenge, but also opportunity uh, within how yeah, we create content and, and how we deliver content. And, and I, I want to kind of parlay that into that now and, 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 and bring it back to one, how you've one harnessed your superpower into this, this business that you've, you've created Lochi. Yeah, Lokai. Yeah, yeah. Lokai. Gosh, yeah, I, I tried three times. Lokai. No, it's, it's funny because it's, <laughs> he said so many ways. But uh, Lokai, Lokai. Uh, <laughs> I literally, I emphasize, I wrote in my paper here. I was like, emphasize that, Lokai. Um, but Lokai, you, you've harnessed your, your brain of yours and, and surround this team around you to build this business. And a lot of it around um, everything we've talked about from education to you know, finding ways to better create and deliver content around the neurodiversity of brains. Um, so I, I, I just gave a small summary, but yeah. I'd love to hear from you of like, how are you, tell us about the company and yeah. um, kind of what is the approach and initiative and um, where are you at today? It's October, 2021. Like where's the business now and who are you, who are you working with? Yeah. So Loci is a platform that is like a no code to- game engine that lets anyone who's responsible for the safety like safety and well-being of other people, create really memorable hyper-contextual games, specifically games that are for the environment where risk happens or games that are required to uh, change, change behavior uh, in someone uh, for, to reduce risk. We're really focused on the risk reduction side of uh, upgrading education because we think that that is like safety Insecurity is a basic human right that we should start with as a foundation for everyone and then build on top of. And so Loci uh, was created um, from a place of, I was spending a lot of time in 3D environments, working on 3D computing, specifically on the web. And I was the first to commercially uh, engage around WebXR uh, in 2015 and became very aware of how much being in physical environments affected my memory, how much better, how I could perfectly remember routes. And I was doing a lot of uh, use cases around what's the best business use case to have a 3D digital twin of a place on the web. Like, is it event planning? Is it crowd modeling? Is it uh, remote education, like, and so I was building all these use cases with this innovation lab and was doing crowd modeling for events, like large scale events, helping them understand based off of who was coming to the concert, uh, how many people would show up to each stage based off of how many people were going to drink, how big the bathroom lines would be. So you could create better spaces for people to share. Normally the software that I was using was used for city planning. So I'd adapted it to use for festival planning. I was having a lot of success there. Uh, but the people I met who were most motivated or the safety managers because their tools are woefully out of date in many cases. Pen and, and paper. so here I am like making this virtual concert with holograms and somebody's like, here's my PDF on how to survive this concert. <laughs> it's like, Ooh, right. And so I, and around that time, the Vegas shooting happened and you could 
watched tragically in real time that no one knew their exits, running across the line of fire, climbing over fences. And this is just the reality that sometimes something's such a like brutal reality that it it's like we almost forget it. it it's it, it's it's real. Like when you talk to a first responder and they're like, nobody knows their exits. I'm like, yeah, that's that seems bad. It seems really bad that everywhere, all all the places we go, no one knows their exits. Like, what are we doing about that? And, you know, you look and you're like, oh, there's an evacuation map. And it's like, have you ever looked at an evacuation map? And for me, I was like, I don't look at these things. And if I do, the chances of me, like, closing my eyes, picturing the building, picturing where I am, focusing on, like, thinking about where the horizon is and where there's landmarks outside and how I'd get out, which is what is required, like, a full closed eye visualization for that map to work. I'm not doing that. No one's doing that. And yet we're paying for this infrastructure everywhere. And while all that infrastructure provides is like an offloading of risk, even then you're not really offloading your risk because in your actuary sheets for property and casualty insurance or anything like that, you're still paying for the complexity of human panic and the fact that nobody knows where these things are. So yes, you're compliant, but you're still paying for that risk. And so in my mind, I was like, I can make, what what if I made it a better evacuation map? Like, what if, what if I actually fixed that one thing? Because that one thing is absolutely everywhere. And it got me really excited. And I've been working on lots of use cases, but that one just like sparked my interest in a new way. And um, I thought about how, how I could provide something like that. And really what it came down to is like, we need to, safety managers need a way to break down the place that they're responsible for into property and fixtures and people. And you need to understand who's going where and why. And the nice thing is, is if you take a first principles approach to it, like I did, there's not very many reasons you go somewhere or do something. You know, you're going to visit someone on property. You're going to deliver something on property or both visitors, right? You're going to inspect something for safety. You're going to respond for safety. You're both inspectors and first responders, your civic workers. You're going to work there. You're either a contractor or an employee, right? There's like four or five ways anyone ever shows up to a place. And our role as we go to different places shifts where we go as and what we do, right? And so it was actually quite simple to think about how to break this apart. Buildings are broken into zones. This is how they're designed. They're designed for safety. There's fixtures. They're all accounted for with serial numbers. There's people and systems that track those people. What if I turned all of those into components in a game engine? So by helping somebody be like, here's all the people that you have to train. Here's all the things they're going to do in your place. Here's all the tools that they have to be safe. What do you want them to know? This going here, they need to know this. This person going here, they need to know this. So it allows for you to literally create games from your environment based off of the actions and roles of people in that environment and then automate it and make it touchless. Um, So we... when I started to create it for the evacuation route, um, I realized this is for all kinds of risk-reducing safety. This is for orientations and simulations. This is actually just a way for people to understand their environment better before they get there. And um, finding the right incentive to do that, because there's lots of people who have made digital twins. There's lots of people making virtual reality experiences. For me, finding the way to do that was identifying, like going painfully through all the actuary tables and identifying where people are already paying for this. Because if somebody's already paying for it, it's a much easier conversation to have than is the vitamin painkiller, right? Like 
oh, take this vitamin every day and you'll feel great in six months. And it's like, oh, does your leg hurt? Like take this painkiller and the pain will go away right away. Like who's going to buy what first? The pain and killer. so that was like my motivation there was, was how can I make a better fire map? And then what became of it was here's a, a game engine, no code game engine for anyone to reduce risk in their environment. So many, so much fire there. Thank you for that. And I, I do, I love the vitamins pain, pain killer analogy because oftentimes you look at like, well, where, where do people respond? And oftentimes it's, it's not necessarily, it's what they, it's what they should do. Oftentimes it's kind of what they're forced to do or yeah. what, or kind of what, what gives kind of a short-term fix. Um, so I think the way that you've, you've approached that, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And thank you for conceptualizing your brain into all that. And I wanted to dive into more about like how this actually is deployed and mm-hmm. give, me, give me a use case for like a, for sure. a, a safety manager at some facility in the center of Canada that has a plant of a hundred people mm-hmm. and no one actually is following the pen and paper PDFs system. And they may check a box, but no one's actually, you know, like you said, they may be compliant, but the actual risk is still significant, which of course mm-hmm. may never lead to anything bad happening. But of course, when that one thing happens, it's pretty significant. So like, how how is it created like and walk me through some of the gamification too like how does an employee use this and why are they incentivized to use this yeah for sure so uh like with the exit test for example um where our customers are like people with digital twins already so like rangers stadium there's a lot of like large-scale organizations that have digital twins that are just sitting on hard drives they were made maybe to for the architectural design, and then they sit in a hard drive or something like that. So we help break apart properties into a database that makes sense. It can be from a digital twin, but it can also be from PDFs. Like here's the map of your entire campus. Here's the structures that are on that campus. Here's the fire zones within that structure. And then here's the fixtures within that fire zone. Now, each of those, imagine each of those as a component you could drag and drop. And so you can, when you drag and drop a fire fixture onto the map and left click, say, you could say add fire quiz or add game or add marker. So then if somebody, and and then that could associate with this game and you could print a sticker and put it next to the extinguisher, or you could send out in your uh, learning management system to everybody, hey, you have to do all the extinguisher scenarios in all the buildings over the next three months. Here's your timer. And then anytime you're in that building, you're standing there, whatever, just you have to do a scenario that solves for that building. And so it's a way to make very like track place-based learning. Because right now, all these large scale organizations, what they'll do is they'll buy an LMS, like a learning management system, and then they'll buy a bunch of courses that they have to have, like confined spaces or, you know, toxic materials or different things like that. And then OSHA will say, okay, that this these online courses don't count as learning. You have to give them in-person orientations and people go, yeah, yeah, we will. And then they don't happen. And so there's not really an easy way to orient someone to a place unless you physically are guiding them around. And by having your whole place broken into components and into this database that isn't too complicated, right? Because it's already how the buildings are designed. You can start to create a conditional access based off of learning. So most even large scale organizations that have been around for like a long, a long time. Like you gave an example of a hundred person organization, say a little mill or something like that. I'm working with C-SPAN, which is a hundred year old organization with thousands of people. And um, where 
organizations are in their change management and awareness of how to solve their issues rather than reacting to them. This is kind of like where the state of safety is globally in resilience engineering. It's like moving from safety one to safety two. So safety one is like reacting, measuring sort of near misses and, and accidents. And safety two is measuring all the programs you have in place to reduce risk. And so it's a completely different, it's, it's like, it's like a paradigm shift that's going to take another few decades. But in that time, our tolerance as a society for risk has gone to zero. Like we have apps, like if you are a cruise ship and you mess up and sing something like you're dead forever and no, you'll, you're a meme for the rest of your life. There's like, you're not sailing another ship probably, right? You're going to go bankrupt. And so there's this zero tolerance for risk. And I think, um, how someone would use this in the most, the, the reason safety managers are so motivated to use this is because they know at the end of the day, their head's on the line. If something does happen, they're sitting on the witness stand. Uh, the difference in a fine, if say somebody like cuts their finger on a saw, the difference the, in the fines for that organization is what was in that training book and how much training that person had. It's either a $500 fine or a $50,000 or $500,000 fine, depending on how much you set that person up for success. And so the problem is, is that like with compliance, it's, it's compliant. But then when something happens and somebody says, did you set that person up for success? The answer is like unequivocally, no, you did not. And now you have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think like the, the goal and the focus of, of, of loci is to actually give the people who would sit on that witness stand um, something that gives them peace of mind at night. Cause what we're trying to do is get show or large scale organizations that you have a safety training gap. The people you train, they're going to like in a classroom setting, like the telling style of training, 70 to 80% of that's gone within the week, right? Uh, the contractors that are coming through procurement that don't get tracked through your like, uh, accounting and LMS system, they're only coming with their pre-existing credentials. They've received probably no site-specific training whatsoever. And guess there's the evacuation sign. Have a look, right? So the, the safety training gap, you, you like one place like say C-SPAN, most of those people are employees. They've received training. And in a place like a, a hotel, like what, 98% guests, hmm. a couple contractors, like people are receiving zeros, zero training. So the safety training gap shows up in all these different places. And what we're trying to get people to look at with loci is because it's a different thing. It's a little bit of all these things. It's like a little bit of like a marketing sequence thing where you can sort of set somebody on a path of communication and training without doing anything, set it and forget it. It's a little bit of a learning management system and a training matrix. And it's a little bit of a game engine and a course creator. Uh, but what it, it helps you achieve is 100% training coverage. And that's all you should care about. That's the only thing you should worry about is, as anyone who runs an organization is, can I make sure that there's no one falling through the cracks as a baseline and then build on top of that? Talk to me more, talk to me more about the gamification, like with yeah. uh, end user, I'm an employee of the, the little mill or the big company. Um, like what, what is their incentive to use it except for the fact that they are required to do it from their bosses? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can use a slightly different example. So when we were the pandemic hit, we were just about to pilot our evacuation uh, game at one of the C-SPAN buildings. And then of course, nobody's evacuating anywhere. And, uh, and all of our future proof, like I've picked safety, it's future proof. I was like wrong safety, <laughs> but, uh, it, 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 it wasn't the wrong safety because we, we, we took a minute 
to sort of assess what was going on in the world as the pandemic was was ramping up. And we realized, well, a virus is just like a fire. Uh, People need to know how to act to stop it. Airflow matters. Different surfaces matter. Um, And so we retooled the, the game engine I was describing earlier to basically just say, hey, you can upload photos of your environment, call out little highlight different surfaces in that environment and ask people how long germs live on this surface. You could ask people how long it takes air, certain questions about airflow. And what we realized is that like, it's really, really important, especially for, I mean, everyone, not just kids and not just adults, but like people hate being told what to do. They hate it. Uh, I have like that same kind of reaction <laughs> immediately. And then I'm like, oh, they probably have my best interest in mind. But my first reaction is like, don't, don't tell me what to do. And so when you say like, hey, stay six feet apart, sing happy birthday when you wash your hands and like, we'll get through this. It's like, what's the, what's the reason? Like, why, like, why do we have to say six feet apart? How long does it take the fatty outer layer of a virus to actually break down? Cause I'm a little bit smarter than singing happy birthday. Like I don't need to know like the intricate like science, but just give me something where it feels like it was my choice. And I think that's the main thing that the experience is like on the other side is like, maybe you don't want to do it, but you would have been sitting in a classroom anyways. And actually like, if it's something's a little bit gamified and you're doing it by yourself or with a little group, it's, you kind of put yourself into this like competitive state and you tune out how boring it is. Um, you also add a little bit of stress to your learning. And when you add a little bit of stress to your learning, you start to bypass and wear down that panic response. And so I think for things like safety right now, uh, people are not as frustrated by safety training because they're starting to see how it really does affect uh, their world. And um, by making it a little bit fun, uh, dare I say, maybe it's not super fun, but it's more engaging. Um, it, it, and by sending somebody on their own learning path, their interest and their understanding is coming from inside them. So they feel like they discovered an answer. And when they discovered an answer and it's correct, that's really like, it's like dropping the inception thought in the brain. So it's coming from this was all my idea to be the most safe person on campus. Like, and clearly I got the best score because I'm the best. And so (laughs) it, it, it really makes somebody feel like it's, it's total inception. It's safety inception. It's like, this is your idea. You know, to stay six feet apart, you know, how long, how far a sneeze droplet can travel, stay, stay apart. Right. And then the other side of that is like, um, Hype, like adding the context, like really making things super visual. We had halfway through, we had made this game because we saw all the governments putting out these information flows that are stagnant at the end. Like the end of this update is a PDF and you will print it off and put it in your store. And then if something changes, you got to do the whole process again, right? And so what you see is this like every time when there's a novel virus and everybody's learning at the same time, but you're a trusted authority who's expected to know everything. The second you get something wrong or you don't know something, the the faith and the trust people have in you go so far down that like now you're fighting against yourself. Whereas if you give people the sign, like I know it's a little bit more work, but if you give people more information, a little bit more context, so they feel like they made the decision themselves and you're like, we made this choice from this pile of data. We hope it's the right one, right? 
people are going to be more forgiving or they're going to want to stay on top of something. So we were like, how could we make an information flow that wasn't a, a stagnant PDF? This is what we're trying to stop with safety in general is just stagnant orders. Safety given as this serious piece of paper and held in front of you. Because when something's we, when we want something to be serious, we tend to make it very stern. When something's very stern, it's usually very like plain and boring. And when boring. something's plain and boring, it's not memorable at all. So in all of our efforts to make safety serious, we actually make it insanely boring. And um, and so the yeah the 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 key there was like how could we make a game that would make people feel like they were investigating germs for themselves and put them into a story world that made sense. And so we put them into this germ scene investigation, kind of blatantly ripping off CSI, all the graphics, everything like that. We're like, how can we make somebody think that they're a germ scene investigator, go around, understand this information, and then want to share the right information. And and so that's sort of like how the the game, that's an example of why someone would play a game there. Another example would be with exit tests, like I was talking about, you're already going to fill out a CAPTCHA and prove teach Google how to see buses better. And that takes anywhere from 15 to 35 seconds to do the CAPTCHA when you buy a ticket. It's a useless exercise other than to prove to the human, to the computer that you're a human. Well, exit test operates on access a CAPTCHA. So rather than type tap all the traffic lights, you'd watch a fly through from your seat at a concert to an exit and tap where it was on the exit. To me, as a person who's like sick of training our AI overlords, like I would welcome that as a replacement. You know, some people are going to feel less so they're going to think it's dumb. But I think generally the the shift because of the pandemic, because of wildfires and all of these like disasters compounding on each other, the world's population increasing, this is only going to be the norm. I think Mm -hmm. that there's a lot more receptiveness to safety, specifically not given in the old boring way. Yep. As you were talking, I was just looking at your website and, and, I, and it's a fantastic website, by the way. Oh, I, I love going through it, but some really good key phrases that I'm just going to read off here of education for the new normal. Yeah. Safety. They won't forget. Yeah. Knowledge retention. Yeah. And then the evolution of blank safety. Um, and I, I like all those phrases a lot. And you've, you've captured and you've communicated a lot of these different opportunities using this this content you can create and gamifying it and all these these kind of high level phrases I just brought up. But I want to bring it back to something that you mentioned in your first statement was the aspect of change management. Mm-hmm. I often I see a lot of different dynamics of where there's a great technology, but oftentimes it's almost too disruptive yeah. that it's going to cause too much change and the current system is just too bureaucratic it has too many jobs and too much already set up that it's almost impossible to like change to this new system um so one i guess be interested in your thoughts on how to implement new technology from a change management perspective but how and then how are you overcoming some of those obstacles to get this new workflow implemented to workplace safety or concert safety I mean, it's a lot of trial and error, right? Going to market is a, no one warns you about that. I was like, I'm like, I built the product. Yes. Yeah. Buy it. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so much trial. Like we, you know, when we first made GSI, right. Like, cause we were, we were, we were really happy and comfortable piloting with C-SPAN and doing our rollout and we're still working with them. But then when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh, uh, 
okay, stores, all these places that are trying to stay open and people are spitting at hostesses and all these, these first, like these essential services, they'll need this, right? There's long lineups out front of grocery stores and stuff. We could put those posters up. God, try tell, try selling to a stressed out, small, medium-sized business owner. Hell no, it's impossible, right? So that that was like learned the hard way. And then, okay, who are our stakeholders? We'll talk to them. Well, in any organization, our key stakeholders from the sort of enterprise API side is there's the security team, which has all the best data about who's coming and going to the campus. And really, that's the data we shape to make the occupant components um, and the occupant profiles for the safety manager. Uh, and then there's the learning management team who's in charge of learning. A lot of times they do some safety training. Maybe they do the safety orientations to begin with, but they'll push all of the uh, sort of WMIS courses and different safety courses through their system. Um, and then there's the safety training team, the safety team itself. Um, and Sadly, a lot of times they none of these none of these departments know each other or talk to each other. You wouldn't think it would be that way, but only very advanced high risk like oil companies and like Boeing's have conditional access and active directories where you can't go somewhere unless you have specific training on that place. Like we'd like to think that that would be easy to set up. It's not. And so in the enterprise where we were starting with with C-SPAN, like we got buy-in from all the stakeholders and they're like, yeah, that would help me a lot. And I'd be happy to work with that person. Then you have to go to the next layer and get buy-in and budgets. Right. And so who do you talk to there? Well, we got stuck a little bit until we discovered the risk manager role. Um, the risk manager, especially in a lot of large organizations, um, if they've been around for a bit, many cases, and they're quite large or they have quite a large campus, and in many cases, it makes more sense for them to start their own captive insurance agency for property and casualty um, and kind of underwrite themselves. Um, and if that's the case, or if they're just like, you know, they have a few thousand people or more, uh, they'll have a director of risk. And this person doesn't really have anything to do with the any of the departments, but they have the ears of the executives. And so what the success I had was getting buy-in that the sort of problem exists through the security team. The security team seems happy to sort of let us know who's coming and going. And then that sort of started a conversation. Hey, here's who's coming and going. Safety team, how do you reach those people who, these people who are coming and going? Oh, we can or we can't or this or that. And then how do you support learning? Oh, well, we do import. Do you work with the learning team? Sometimes on certain things. Okay, well, what if I gave you all the profiles of people who come here and then... I helped you set what the training should be for them. And then I offered those courses as like SCORM courses or actually like canned courses that could go into the learning management system. So you don't have to do all this and handle all this training. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, that sounds great. And then the risk manager, I say, hey, here's all the places you're already paying for risk. You have about 40% of your contractors and guests that receive no site specific orientation. I think that you could probably lobby on behalf of this organization for a reduced rate if we were to close this gap. What do you think? Yes. Okay, great. Now we can talk to the executives, get the buy-in and go all the way down. It wasn't easy, right? It's never easy, but that's the thing. It's like, it's like you're, it, how do you expect to sell to a complicated organization? Change management is something that you kind of only learn in like master's business class and stuff. And it's kind of the first thing you need to know about selling to an organization. Yeah, but um, even think, even still, like the only way you learn is by uh, get scraping your knees a little bit, 
You know, you yeah. can only read so much in a textbook and write on a whiteboard. And um, I think just the, the example you gave of really understanding the stakeholders pain point and then finding ways to where they could reduce risk and then ultimately save money, you mm-hmm. know, that gets people <laughs> that gets people to sit up straighter in their chair. And, and is the system you're selling held up by one person like this? Or are there like multiple people in the organization that will be imp- in- inclined to want to hold it up too? Because I can't tell you how many times I see like, for example, like confined space fests, like, okay, there's a complaint. People don't feel safe with the certain things, like with the checks, we don't have enough people doing checks and, and having the buddy system for confined spaces or in the yeah. summer, it's going to get really hot. Okay, we order all these vests that that monitor, keep you cool and monitor your heart rate and things like that. Okay, huge purchase order. They all go in, create the training program for them. What is the what is the what does the union say? How do they handle our personal data? Where is it stored? Offsite? Nope. And then it's done. And then all those vests sit in a container and, and like that's just it. Yeah. Right. And so this is this happens like so like you can sell something to somebody, maybe, but will it be successful? Will it be the sale that you wanted to have and like the like solve the problem long term that you aim to solve? That has everything to do with who your stakeholders are managing the program. And you can't be there all the time. You can't be a full-time account manager. So who really I think the success of programs comes is if you have more than a couple of stakeholders from different departments. Um, and and if you want to sell, like really just look up the best practices of change management and understand people are going to fight you just because you're new and like not even listen to what you say. And if you can figure out how to say the right things to them that make them feel heard and seen and understood and assure people that there is a support system in place for this, you'll, you know, you'll get through the door. I can't promise anything. But. Well, you're, you're living true to the sign behind your shoulder of moving slow and fixing and, things. Yeah, that was our, my, my, my. My agency that was doing all the innovation around WebXR, uh, it was like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's move fast and break things. Yeah. So it was like the, uh, my whole thing was always doing the exact opposite thing that Mark Zuckerberg was doing. Well, speaking <laughs> so of Mark- like, what if you move slower? Like, because the thing is, is if you move slow, you can kind of be an, um, you can be like a glacier, like mm-hmm. you can just push a whole thing out. If you're accounting for everyone, if you're like, oh no. We made all these people that you were letting fall through the cracks. They're with me now. And you can come in like a tidal force yeah. and, ha- and make and, and shape the entire landscape for completely well, anew. And one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk, says this phrase he says all the time is uh, micro speed and macro patience. And so oh, I, I love that. It's you, you have to have that high level perspective on being everything you want takes time. Like you mentioned change management and lot might escape adoption, but on the, on the day-to-day, yeah. you're getting after it. You are, you're trialing an error and you are having conversations, having meetings, you know, doing all these different things to move forward. So good, good life lessons and, and posters and things to kind of always <laughs> remind ourselves of what our North star is. Um, so I want to parlay into, uh, into kind of a similar vein conversation, but, but different. And particularly as it pertains to, um, around the SDGs, as well mm-hmm. as even the first responders, but the concept of kind of urban planning and infrastructure uh, with city design. Um, obviously, there's this dynamic of how cities are are kind of created uh, and what kind of what the infrastructure is is how it's built, and then 
what the user experience is like while living in it. And then even from a first responder perspective of how do they respond and then how do they get people out? And, and there, there's so much overlap you have here, but um, you know, with what you are doing with Loci um, and got it right that time, I think. Uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> what, t- talk to me just a little bit about like the infrastructure conversation and how it exists now. And what are maybe a few things that we could do moving forward to, to better design existing cities or, or future cities, especially ones with like rapidly growing urban populations? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, I mean, we, I touched on it a little earlier when what was happening with the pandemic where you're giving out information to people and these information flows that are uh, sort of dead on arrival. Um, and you, with cities, you have a lot of cities using what I would call safety one data, reactive data, like how many hospital beds are full. Okay, our message isn't working, right? Whereas where I see my system evolving this is who needs to know what, where, and how do we reach them? How do we make sure that that information can stay consistently up to date? Um, And so I think something that people glaze over in technology is they get in innovation is they think of innovation as what's cutting edge and what's new and not what's become recently ubiquitous. So what's become recently ubiquitous is QR codes. Uh, They seem like maybe boring and old, but now after the pandemic and all the menus being this way and information being this given this way in a touchless way, uh, people like my grandma or anyone can, can use one and understand one. And not only that, it was only a couple of years ago that the actual scanning of QR codes became native in all phones. So here we are like putting, talking about AR and all the future of cities that'll be able to do all these smart things and IoT and be connected, but um, cities are only as smart as the people inside them. And so when we think about giving information and we think about having a, a, rapidly, a, a rapidly growing city, is everybody going to be a native English speaker in a rapidly growing city? Probably not, right? Uh, is everyone going to be able to read the signs that you put up so lovingly? Oh, um, so who is the city for then? Uh, and so for me, the things that cities need to build as an information layer is a, a, a more dynamic information flow to their constituents to and from. The power of the web is it's read-write. Right. It's not just like send out an information flow. Um, you could give say, say as an as an example in the step in the right direction, you could make sure there was QR codes on every single city sign that would say like like have a global language translator thing. So at least somebody could hold up that sign, like like scan a QR code and get the instructions in their native language about that place. Um, but what if you also were trying to figure out what people understand in vulnerable populations about the coronavirus? What if you gave them a game like GSI and you could understand not any personally identifiable information, but that if they're in this neighborhood, they're using this language to do the, the game and they're getting these answers wrong. That's preventative data. That's data that can change the way a city communicates with you and, and reacts to you. Um, and that's really the sort of bedrock of what I'm trying to create. There's so many ways you can make a city resilient. I think to make a city resilient, you have to have really strong communication to and from the constituents and the leaders of that city. Um, and so I think that 
to get there, we have to be thinking about who we're leaving behind. And if we were to grow rapidly, how would, how, where would those people be coming from? And how do we welcome them into the behaviors that keep them safe in this particular area? Because, you know, in Japan, if you're standing at a train station and you hear a weird sound and you don't know it's because there's a mudslide, that's a big deal. Um, you wouldn't expect a mudslide from where I am here. We're full of surrounded by trees, right? So these are the types of things where if we're going to be a global like society, how are we communicating the baseline Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like just being and feeling safe? Just that. Um, I think we're failing everywhere, even in modern cities, at addressing who's there and what they need to know to be safe. Cities are only as smart as the people inside them. I, I hadn't thought about it in that context because, of course, you think about the city design and the data that's being created, and it's more about hey, the the system around us around us is what is really kind of defines and is the like orchestrates how safe or happy or what our well being is going to be. But that it, that two way information flow of data and and how we can better educate people to, you know, whether it's a even the Maslow's, uh, you know, getting people to, uh, you know, Pavlov, the whole getting people to do something by, you mm -hmm. know, the, the some sort of action of uh, hearing a bell and doing some task. Um, yeah. You know, certain certain things to, to better teach people to take some action within a city can make all the difference, especially as you you've talked about from evacuation planning or or germ planning and. Um, you know, I think you have you have such a unique context in terms of how you're you've created this this software that's that's adaptable. And I'd love to now kind of hear more um, and kind of finishing up here of how what's a use case of this type of application for urban design or or city planning? And like, is there a you, you talked earlier about the germ safety um, as well as evacuation planning and, and different like workplace safety, but from this infrastructure dynamic is this something in the works right now or where where is it being used or deployed at the moment yeah so the city of vancouver is just starting to work on an accessibility framework and i have the pleasure of starting to collaborate with them on just how to think about information flows and and putting information in the right place at the right time you know something i from a city planning perspective, I can talk about sort of maybe what I see as the future, because I think when we, you know, there's a lot of talk now about things like just, just to sort of finish off, off on the human behavior side um, and the smart city piece, like people like to think that we're going to have self-driving cars and all these things like that. But it's like people who make self-driving cars don't like to study human behavior <laughs> as much as they should, because you you forget the fact that if we all know that you know, say you're designing an, an artificial intelligence for cars based off of how humans react to streets now, knowing that other humans are driving cars. If all of a sudden I know that all the cars on the street have to stop for me, am I going to jaywalk more? Yes, I am 100% going to jaywalk more. Like, so how are you going to have self-driving cars? Because you have to be persistently training human behavior to work with cars that have to listen to you like it's just not going to happen and so like i love seeing the trillions of dollars lit on fire going towards this but hmm. unfortunately unless we work on this sort of molding of human behavior from a civic perspective and also incentivizing private owners 
to make their private land data available to systems, which is another thing that isn't going to happen overnight. Uh, we're not going to have these like intelligence autonomous cities anywhere. What we're going to have if everybody continues the way we are is a bunch of citizens on their phones running into poles, getting hit by buses. And so then what the city is going to do, they're going to lower the speed limit again to accommodate for pedestrians that don't pay attention, right? We're going to have even more congested streets because all these trucks out for delivery are stopped trying to figure out where to actually get the package to. Like currently, 80% of trucks out for the delivery are stopped. So this isn't a traffic issue. It's like a civic, it's a human behavior issue. And mm. until cities start acting on the human behavior piece first and designing for who's there, like how they interact with the city and the places and like what they need to be safe. Like we're, we're starting from the wrong, the wrong place. Yeah. Um, and so uh, my few, my, my goal from a civic infrastructure perspective is like say 10 years, little guy's gone public. It's everywhere. Uh, you and I are about to, you know, like, hey, Kevin, you're going to go meet Sam for lunch. Uh, traffic's light. Uh, there's no blocks on your route. Um, would you like to spend 30 seconds learning your way? And so now you actually see a little fly through from your house to our, where we're going for lunch at eye level. Every time you turn a corner, the camera goes up, gives you a horizon point, goes back down. The streets have little loci on them. Loci is a, is a mnemonic device, like a, a point of interest. So say, if you had to turn left on Washington Street, you'd see a little George Washington or Washington Husky, depending on what your preferences were of memorization. And you'd be able to pre-visualize your route to where you're going for lunch with me. So you're showing up to an airport. It's like, hey, it's time to check into your gate, Kevin. Uh, would you like to pre-visualize the route to your gate? So that you put your phone away when you get to the place, right? You you like, oh, there's like, uh, just so you know, your gate's like six kilometers down the end of a weird hallway under construction. And there's like a two day old tuna fish sandwich at the end and nothing else. Like that's information I would like to know before I walk the six kilometers yeah. down to the hell's end of LAX. Um, so the pre, the pre visualization yeah. for any task just has yeah, simulation training at scale, simulation training at scale for going to your flight for meeting a friend for coffee to yeah. driving somewhere like uh, you, if you've really opened my mind to where this is a, a a platform that can be used simplified on both three three D uh, imagery or mm -hmm. or real life photos and just made to be super interactive driven through our cell phones that are yeah. wired to our hips and I, I'm really impressed I, I I've, I've learned a lot and, the, and frankly you the way you speak about the human behaviors is is a is unique. I, I don't think it's something from the design perspective that is is given enough attention, and and I, I'm um, I'm really excited to to learn more. And frankly, I have like I I probably have another forty questions I could ask you. And well, I, I think have to come back. We're we'll we're again. this is we're at like about an hour mark, so this is yeah. fire. I will say most <laughs> podcasts I shoot for the thirty to forty five minute range, and I'm like, gosh, I don't want to end this. I know. <laughs> like I want to talk about Meta, the Facebook. I want to talk about synthetic data. I want to yeah. talk about, like there's so many things I want to dive into more. And so um, I think this is maybe our part one conversation. Yeah, um, that sounds great. <laughs> to, 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 let's say, uh, abruptly end this. Okay. Um, give me uh, kind of uh, two, two things. One, uh, a final mic drop of something that you want to tell the audience 
And then also if people want to get involved um, how could, and, and collaborate with you, how would they do that? Sure. So uh, the I'd say the final mic drop is, so the our, our name loci comes from the method of loci, which is a 2,500 year old memorization technique that's still employed today by memory champions who can remember thousands of digits and faces and all these different things like that. The capacity to remember is such a huge part of our physiology. The capacity to understand our environment is massive and, and ancient. And uh, if, if you study really cool recent neuroscience about how we navigate, we actually have a GPS in our brain that's making place in grid cells and creating these environments for us and storing them. So I believe that we have a better chance of uh, building a future for ourselves if we start to tap into the capacities and uh, we already have as opposed to off offload them. And I'd, I'd like people to think about what tasks that you're handing over to technology that might be tasks you should be keeping for yourself because they ultimately are the best parts of why you're human. Um, and they're the things that'll keep you safe no matter what. Uh, so just leaving people with a, maybe a pondering thought of like, what am I giving away to technology and what do I want to keep? And then what was the second one? How can people get involved in collaborating? Oh, how can with people you? get involved? Oh, right now we're like anybody who's responsible for the safety of others or interested in making safety games. We're just opening up our beta of our platform in uh, next year, January. So we're taking signups. Uh, so if people want to go to uh, learnbyloci.com, that's learnbyloci.com and sign up to our newsletter or sign up for, I think by the end of the week, our website will have a thing for uh, safety managers to sign up to our beta program. And in the spring, we'll be putting together cohorts of safety managers and safety trainers from all over the world, resilience engineers from all over the world who want to start building their first games. Um, so if you're wanting to start building games that save lives, uh, head on over to Learn by Loci and, and join us. Sam, it has been a pleasure. I like oh, I said, yeah. this is this is part one at least, um, and uh, I'm I'm really excited to continue to learn more, collaborate, and and see what the future holds for for you and Lokai. Oh, Kevin, it's such a pleasure. I'm I'm such a fan of what you do, and and I can't wait to collaborate with you further as well. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sam. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of SDG Talks as much as we did. Check out the show notes for all the resources and please reach out if you think you're a good fit for an interview or have another idea for collaboration. Catch you next time and make sure to keep on SDG talking.